Hey, everybody. It's Will here. Welcome to the first episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today, we've got a really special guest. Uh, to kick it off, we brought on CEO Mason Joppa. How you doing, man? Hey, Will. Good to be on, man. Really excited to launch this uh, new product offering and, and jam and talk about some uh, hot topics in the space right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess kind of as a, you know, traditional podcast format, let's just get into some background on yourself, you know, where you're from, um, you know, how you got into Bitcoin, all that kind of thing. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So I uh, grew up in St. Louis, was born in Los Angeles, actually. Um, and we moved to St. Louis because my family business owned a wood manufacturing company. Um, and, and I'll get into that, but that's actually led me to Bitcoin mining with uh, some of the warehouses that um, the business had in Bridgeton, Missouri. Um, after growing up in St. Louis, I went to college to Indiana University, University uh, go Hoosiers. Uh, got a degree in finance and a master's degree in information system. Went down a rabbit hole of management consulting. Along the way, in 2013, I discovered Bitcoin, uh, mainly actually through the usage of the Silk Road, which was uh, running around <laughs> IU and had some friends that uh, certainly dabbled. Um, and that's where I learned about Bitcoin. And I always look back when I'm researching Bitcoin and what was the true like adoption event that um, triggered, you know, Bitcoin to be global news and and eventually, you know, growing to the masses. I, I really do think it was the Silk Road, but we can get into that and love talking, love researching the uh, the Bitcoin cowboys of, of the early days. Um, after uh, after management consulting, I entered some time as a lead software engineer at a risk management company, and then. Um, during that timeline in 2015, 2016, um, my dad had some space in a warehouse and I started just randomly ordering Bitcoin miners with the intention to sell them. Um, I found out during that process, it was really hard to order miners, receive the miners. Um, you're sending you know, Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash or other currency types to China and you know, just hoping the machine show up in a few months. Um, so with that, we had some excess power in, in one of the warehouses and I did a lot of research trying to figure out what to put in there. And I, I came to Bitcoin mining. Um, so started mining and scale there. Um, built another mine in one of my best friend's basements. Um, <laughs> during the summer, he had a girlfriend and the first house he purchased, we literally turned into a mini data center and we would laugh because like his his house would literally become like 120 degrees during the summer. He'd like he'd call me like, you know, bitching about wanting to turn off the miners. I'm like, no, dude, you have to keep the miners on. Like, I was like, go buy some air conditioners. Um, so that clearly wasn't sustainable. And then, you know, move that stuff to the warehouse. And then eventually, you know, managing that, at you know, a small scale, you know, growing like 50, 100 miners, I moved to like uh, my first hosting arrangement. Um, in 2017, I found a Blockware uh, Solutions. Um, it's been a hell of a ride. We've, we've grown a lot as a company. Originally, we started out being one of the largest distributors of machines in the world. Um, and then slowly become vertically integrated in mining. Um, Can you mining. just explain for listeners what vertically integrated means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So vertically integrated, in my opinion, is we control every facet of mining. So with that, we were distributors of the miners themselves. So we have the supply chain. We mine Bitcoin. We operate hosting facilities that for our own managing our own machines and placing clients' machines for hosting. Um, we, we write research and leading research. So we have data and analytics that drive some of our decision-making and we have mining software. Um, we're looking to offer insurance to our miners um, and as well, we offer consulting in space. But anyways, those, those main points are like true vertical integration in mining, controlling the whole stack, right? Got it. 
And so like, what are, what are kind of some of the lessons just from a, you know, purely just starting a business standpoint, um, what are some of the lessons that you learned along the way? And I guess also what are, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you made along the way as well? My God. Um, <laughs> it's honestly, this place is the absolute wild west, especially if you're, you know, starting in 2017 and you're trying to figure out how to order machine, streamline the process of ordering machines from China, them arriving to the States and creating a credible company in between. Um, our first marketing pitch was we put out ads in in the top three cities of every state on Craigslist. Um, and one of my first mistakes was I put my phone number on those ads. So I would used to get like a thousand calls a day from the sketchiest mofos, um, you know, reaching out to me, looking to like buy machines or, you know, interest in services or trying to sell me, you know, whatever the hell else they had to sell. And you can imagine, um, that was the first mistake, but in general, I think with, you know, growing this company, you know, there's many things that you learn. I think over the years, you realize um, relationships are most valuable. Um, you know, early on it, you know, we could have clients and um, for us, we would see, you know, real money coming for the first time and um, learning to manage the clients that we had as long-term relationships versus, you know, quick transactions was something I picked up really quickly. And then as you grow and, and you know, become more ingrained with networking and relationships, you realize how important it is to keep those relationships maintained, um, to keep your clients happy, to keep your partners happy. Um, and managing all of that into one is, you know, an art form of its own. Um, but beyond that, you know, creating an engine, you know, hiring people, scaling a business, raising capital, um, writing research, um, creating new products like Blocker Intelligence. It all takes a lot of time and effort. And in the end, it's all about having the right team of individuals and, and trusting your team to deliver and orchestrate. Will, you being one of our new hires, you know, really excited what you bring to the table, but it's like, how can I have will position will so that he can you know succeed and and you know and grow right um i mean you're 19 years old i i can't believe that <laughs> i'm 30 yeah so like you know one thing I, I i'm very curious about is like how do you position growing a business around the, the cyclical nature of bitcoin because you know unlike unlike uh, most markets you have these really dramatic uh, bull markets and, and bear markets. And how do you kind of, um, you know, manage, you know, your risk, but also just like from an operational standpoint from those, you know, very dramatic swings? Yeah. So, I mean, mining is extremely, extremely cyclistic, just like Bitcoin is, right? It's all built around these four-year halving events. But in, in between the halvings, you have all these micro and macro events that take place. You know, a recent one that you can look to is like the Chinese exodus, right? No one in their models entering the year was expecting 55% of global hash rate to come off at a time. So I think it's important first and foremost to be extremely agile, right? Prepare for an event to take place, whether it's a Bitcoin drop, a hash rate drop, um, and, and have capital ready so that you can um, arbitrage those opportunities. Um, I think it's really important to have analytics and be able to somewhat, you know, have a grip on forecasting. Um, and that drives you to, you know, where do you get that data? So possessing the data, putting the data to work, talk, talking to individuals, you know, you know, sharpening your axes as much as possible on the analytics front so that you can make calculated decisions. Um, so with that, you know, each year the having coming um, to miners, you know, essentially your revenue is cut in half. Um, but, you know, during this cycle, for example, you know, entering it, we we knew there was something special, right? We, we identified this quickly as a super cycle and we, were, we, we circled this and said, this cycle will be one of the best cycles in the history of mining to deploy as much capital as possible. So that was our goal entering this. But with that in the cycle, you know, you have bull markets, you have bear markets. Um, with mining, you want to keep, you want to make sure you don't overextend, right? 
don't overextend your capital into machines without having the OPEX to cover an event where, you know, margins could be constrained and profitability could go down. Uh, make sure you're not locking yourself in a bull market into high energy rate hosting contracts, right? 90% of cost in mining is the cost of your energy. Um, so you you just need to manage your all-in energy costs, and then you can map that to a Bitcoin break-even cost. And then as you hit a, a stride of a bear market, you know, just, just managing your expectations, you know, becoming lean and mean. And don't be a capitulator, right? Always have enough capital so that you can keep your operation running for several years. You need to look several years out and you want to be positioned to have capital when you need it. So for us, we had capital to buy machines and buy distressed assets when the Chinese capitulated. Not everyone did. Everyone raced to, you know, raise money and maybe they missed some of the best price, you know, um, arrangements possible, you know, and buying those distressed assets. Um, and that still exists. You know, there's still excess supply and we saw scarcity prior to that. Uh, anyways, that was a long-winded answer. I think it's it's all about um, having data, understanding analytics, you know, having financing in place and, and being agile and, and quick moving during these market events. Because Bitcoin in the end is highly volatile and mining can be highly volatile as we've seen with Exodus. So you just want to position yourself um, accordingly to, to adjust when these events take place. Got it. And I kind of want to kind of pivot the conversation to what are your thoughts on some of the recent events with, with mining? Obviously, you know, the, the Chinese migration, is, as you touched on, is, has been a huge uh, talking point throughout the year. Um, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, hash rate, perhaps uh, migrating to North America, slowly coming back online, that kind of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been a proponent for uh, decentralizing the network for a very long time. You know, we've been writing about let's bring hash rate to North America for several years, um, and and we want to bring Bitcoin in the hands of Americans and, and and our friends in Canada, and we want to bring hash rate in the hands of our friends in Bitcoin in Canada, or, or USA and Canada. Um, so with that, you know what I'm seeing is, I believe 50% of hash rate um, is is migrated to the United States. You know, prior to the exodus, we could map the futures orders orders right. So now we've had more visibility on future hash rate entering the marketplace with these public companies announcing massive purchases. And for us, we can relatively have a grip on supply. You know, how many machines can Bitmain make? How many machines can What's Miner make? How many machines can um, other manufacturers make, right? And you could take that supply, map it to the orders taking place, and then you can map where those orders are heading. Like, are they heading to Riot? Are they heading to Marathon? Or are they heading to Date? And then you can understand, you know, where the hash rate's heading. So prior to the movement, I was, you know, I think the USA was poised to capture a lot of the future growth and hash rate, um, just mapping the orders. But then this exodus takes place, right? Um, where does everyone head there? I would say, you know, 60% of the Chinese miners, more or less, um, moved to the United States or are moving here. They're building, they're, they found our partner with hosting facilities. Um, you know, they're desperately, you know, seeking hosting and coming to companies like us. Um, so with that, I think we're going to see a, a shift, a paradigm shift of the Chinese being in control of hash rate and, and Bitcoin and in crypto in general, you know, from an infrastructure perspective, right? Infrastructure and proof of work as miners to now it's shifting hands to the United States. So I think in the future, we're going to have over 50% of of total hash rate. Um, and with that, a lot of the supply of Bitcoin is going to enter us. Um, and I'm really excited about that. So with that, we'll see some new products that come out. We'll see some new companies emerge. Um, it's kind of like the global space race, right? You know, you see these public companies and SPACs and reverse mergers. We're seeing more saturation than ever. And, and, and then each company is going to have to find this edge to be competitive in the future. But during a super cycle like this, um, if Bitcoin price continues to outplay its difficulty, then everyone's going to be profitable. And I think everyone's going to be eating this cycle um, in general. Sure. Uh, and, and what are your thoughts on kind of the, the regulatory stance that the U.S. has taken on Bitcoin? Do you see it as friendly? 
Man, that's such a, that's the million dollar question. Uh, we've had a lot of people reaching out to us. So um, there's, you can unpack it. Like the infrastructure bill, you have some clout as far as, you know, how do you classify a broker? Um, and that, um, and then it, you know, is a miner a broker, right? Um, the problem is miners can't have the, comply with the regulations that the bill passed. You know, they can't feasibly comply. The only people positioned to comply with the regulations that were potentially pushed out in that bill, which we're still seeking clarity on, is um, the only people that can can, can possibly uh, hit those requirements are the exchanges, right? The Coinbase's, the Gemini's. They have millions, if not a billion dollars invested in regulatory arms. And they have the, 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 um, the teams, the, the human capital, and the proficiency to hit those bills. Miners are, you know, we can't, we, we we cannot possibly keep up with those regulations. So I do think miners will be excluded. And I do think that will be clarified. Um, on the second hand as well, you have, you know, the energy, the ESG narratives that are coming out, right? Um, is Bitcoin mining bad for the environment? Um, and, you know, my answer is a firm no. I don't think that, I don't think it's fair that miners, you know, should have to be concerned about where their energy comes from. Um, but in general, I do think miners are, are aware and they're they're willing to comply. Um, and I think, you know, some of the positioning that you know, some of these policy groups are taking is you're looking at the wrong people, right? We're, we're less than one, you know, less than a half percent of the global energy uses. Um, probably even less than that, you know, as a, as of recent statistics. Um, and and miners are are likely more likely than not uh, over fifty percent sustainable energy because naturally we flock to non rival or excess supply energy. You know, how do you classify that? It's going to be otherwise wasted. Um, we flock to renewable energy because it's the cheapest. We're we run around and look for the cheapest energy, right? Um, and naturally that's renewable. That's that's excess supply, non rival energy. Um, and some of that would be mixed grid energy, right? You know, how do you define what's in a grid? You know, that's on the energy companies. Um, there's a million different things we talked about as far as miners being, you know, good for the environment and good for infrastructure. Um, but you know, back to that point, I think you know they're looking in the wrong place. You know, banks are are net, you know, probably less than 5% sustainable energy with all the, the energy use cases of, of keeping that you know centralized financial system in place. Um, lithium batteries are net 0% renewable energy. Tesla is 12% sustainable energy. And they're big Bitcoin critics. You know, Look at where parts are manufactured across the world. Look at the slave labor that's used to make those parts. Look at the energy that's used by those manufacturers to make those parts. Look at the coal companies, look at all of the different public entities that exist. And, and they're looking at Bitcoin miners as having um, negative um, influence on energy utilization, when in fact, we're truly not. And we're, we're doing our best to comply. We're highly aware. And we're, you know, we're, we're proving ourselves out. And it's all going to be data. You know, that's, I think we're going to get the data. We're going to pr prove that we're you know, highly sustainable you know, from, from large entities. And, and you know, hopefully we can put that um, narrative to rest. Got it. And like, how do you kind of see the the game theory, if you will, of, of uh, you know, kind of minor adoption around the world uh, playing out and kind of like, what factors do you think influence um, like where hash migrates over time? Yeah, it's total game theory, right? Um, a lot of it now is so it's, it's cheap energy, right? Um, so you, if you can find a country or a unique province that has low cost energy that, you know, Hydro is great. That, that is, you know, potentially sustainable. Great. Um, and, and deploying those locations. But a lot of it also comes down to stability these days. So I've always said you need the perfect cocktail, you know, of, when seeking to deploy your miners in a specific location of good politics, a good energy cost, a good um, team and infrastructure, a good stabilized energy source, whether you're pulling from a stabilized grid or you're behind meter or you are also um 
you know, partnered with some type of entity that, um, you know, is, is in power generation. Um, so with that, you know, you need those different factors to ensure you have the right location. With what we've seen with China, we see how important it is to have good political support with your miners, right? So the Chinese were devastated. You know, I would estimate that 30 to 40% of Chinese miners just threw up their hands and permanently capitulated. They sold off all their infrastructure. They're still selling off their miners and they exited the mining game. Then you saw a resilience of 60 or so percent of the Chinese that are relocating and, and figuring it out. Um, and I think they're relocating to, you know, Kazakhstan, to um, provinces of Canada, to Norway, to Sweden, to Switzerland, to, to you know, to air or even to Russia, to different locations that have cheap power um, and, and a lot to America, right, where there's political stability and, and you really hit the head on every one of those cocktails. Um, something that people forget about as well is in, the, in North America, we have the most liquid um, market as it, um, as it pertains to the minor market, right? Here you can sell machines within one day to somebody else in North America. And it, there's complexities with selling machines in Russia and Kazakhstan and China, right? People do not pay a premium for machines in Kazakhstan. You know, just the sound of it, it sounds like it's, it, it you know, from a purchaser or buyer standpoint, if you're in the United States, it sounds like it's not going to be a smooth process. Whereas, you know, machines here will sell for a higher premium. You have more buyers here. Um, so you can think about machine liquidity as being a factor as well, right? Um, so with that, I think all fingers are pointing towards people deploying in North America. Um, it has all the cocktail. It has the best machine liquidity. And um, it, it's where you'll see the most growth with proficiency. And, and something that I left out, too, that I think is probably the most important factor in mining right now is access to financing and access to the capital markets. You've seen the playbooks of Mara and Riot, right? They wrote the playbooks as far as going public with their billion dollar valuations and access to debt, the cheap debt, cheap capital. Have you seen the playbooks of Michael Saylor, right? He's, he's, he's writing 500 million junk bonds. You know, I've had a couple of great calls with him. You know, he works for 10 hours that day. He said he makes, he makes um, $50 million an hour to raise capital for a junk bond and then goes and buys Bitcoin, right? MicroStrategy just turned into a Bitcoin ETF. Um, there's, we can unpack a little bit more about the public markets. I think it'd be good. Um, but anyways, so access to capital in a capital intensive business like mine is so important. And I think part of what part of the companies that are going to succeed the most are those that, that, that have access to that capital and pull off the largest financing without you know, giving away too much equity and you know, sinking, sinking their ship. Got it. And like, what do you kind of see as like the biggest, I guess, like existential risks to Bitcoin miners? Um, you know, aside from, I guess, like, you know, just regulation is, is probably the most obvious one there. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, it could, you know, if let's say United States, um, it's politics, right? You know, the United States bans Bitcoin or mining, then you know, everyone here is no fuck. Um, but with that, you know, miners are pretty resilient. You know, the Chinese prove that you can you know, be rug pulled and relocate, you know, in relatively quick timeline. I've known, I know some Chinese that, you know, exerted the most resilience in the fact that they moved like a 20 megawatt operation to the States within one month. I, that's amazing. I love seeing that. And I, and I think that was the largest technological migration that will take place in our century, in this century or in our lifetime, moving all that infrastructure and machines, you know, from, from around the world. Um, but with that as well, I think, um, you know, energy, you know, energy access, right? Um, accessing this cheap energy. If you look across the states and globally, energy as a commodity is going up in price because, um, as humans, as a race, you know, innovate and grow more corporations and, and entities, the energy requirements are going up. So we need to, you know, have market share of energy because Bitcoin mining is, is 
a monetized energy at its finest. So that, you know, not having that energy access and, and getting those long-term lease and, and making the right partnerships for miners is extremely crucial. Um, I think access to financing is an existential risk, right? A lot of these traditional institutions, first off, they can't hold Bitcoin in their balance sheet. Secondly, they don't understand this industry. So when you're a Bitcoin miner and you're looking for loans or collateralizing your, your mining rigs or, or infrastructure, it's really hard for you to pull that off. It could take you many months. I've experienced it myself. You know, we've gotten financing. It could take us up to six months. And some of the rates that you get can be upwards of 30%. You know, they're robbing us. So getting access to that low-cost capital um, and proving out that we're a non-risky industry, I think is something that's taking place now. And I think we're seeing a lot of traditional financiers, you know, um, help out. But, you know, that's a risk of its own. You know, if we don't have capital, then we have to sell off our Bitcoin. Um, and with that, of course, there's always the risk of a bear market, right? Um, if a bear market takes place, you know, it's not always going to be glory days and good times like it is now. You've got to, you know, become lean and mean and prepare for it. Um, your, your margins will be compressed, right? These, these at-home miners that are you know, mining in their basements are going to be the first ones off the networks. Then the oldest miners, the highest energy rates, you need to be prepped for that. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're battling, I think uh, another risk to close this topic is we are using resources aside for ener energy that are being used around the world in different use cases that in some, you know, in some cases, you know, you could argue are more important. Like we're talking about, we're battling for the same chips that Google um, and IBM and Microsoft are battling for, for electric cars, for, um, you know, we're battling with Elon Musk for the chips that he uses to for SpaceX, right, or for artificial intelligence. Um, so we we are fighting for those same chip supplies from you know the 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 Samsungs, the TSMCs, and the same chips on the on the other altcoin mining, you know, such as Nvidia and AMD graph cards. Um, so with that, you know, having access to that supply and that supply constraints in mining have always been prevalent. We, we're just not seeing supply constraints right now with the, the Chinese capitulation. Um, so with that, having access as well to that infrastructure. If you remember earlier in this year, Biden passed an infrastructure bill, which was you know put a lot of money towards um, building infrastructure in the states. Having access to transformers, switch gears, network gear, to all the energy infrastructure. We're, we're battling other companies and entities for that same resources. So I think access to resources is an existential risk. Got it. And when you kind of, you know, think forward, call it, you know, 10, 15 years, I know that's like, you know, millennia and Bitcoin terms. Um, how do you, you know, how do you see yourself um, kind of pivoting the company moving forward and just other Bitcoin miners in general? Um, how can they kind of leverage their position as a Bitcoin miner uh, to kind of pivot for new opportunities into the future? Great question. So I think the, the future of mining is in its essence as supply continues to dwindle, right? You're going to see supply shock, which which we have Will the Shill as the expert on, right? Um, but then we all, we also have um, we're going to be living off transaction fees in the future, right? So it's just preparing for when supply you know goes down to you know, three point X per um, reward and the next having, and then down from there to one point six X per you know block reward, and then down to point eight X block reward, and then so it's going to continue to go down, and then you know we're going to be living off of transaction fees in that future, right? We're going to be paid for our um, participation of validating network transactions. Um, so with that, um, I think transaction fees are going to go up. And I think the U.S. fiat value of Bitcoin is going to go up and justify that, you know, in 20, 30, 40 years or in the year of 2140, when all Bitcoin supplies mine, um, will make it worthwhile for miners that we're still in existence. But with that, when you hit those levels, it's going to become more and more competitive. So those that have the highest edges, whether it's free energy or best software, best team, et cetera, are going to win. Um, we're going to see um, the biggest and baddest miners continue to thrive and exist. Um, so, you know, at some point you have to prepare for that. And then what miners need to do is just position themselves, right? 
we're controlling energy, which is an amazing asset. You can do a million different things in energy, you know, having different use cases for that energy. Um, and my belief is mining will be around for you know, a very long time. I'm not too worried about it. But as well, you can you know, position a company in different sectors. You know, for us, we, we're also infrastructure in, in proof of stake, right? We run match nodes, value nodes, staking nodes, you know, inserting yourself as infrastructure in other areas, leveraging your competencies and things you've learned within generalized blockchain. Um, and innovating use cases, right? Replacing these legacy centralized banks. That is a use case of mining. I think miners, um, you know, as preparing for the future should think about what they should do with their Bitcoin, right? In, in theory, you should never have to sell through Bitcoin. You should be able to collateralize it, you know, or, or hedge it um, and get financing on your Bitcoin so you can just live off it forever. Um, but I do think, you know, miners, when they're mining at these scales and, you know, other network participants, you know, whether it's exchange or, or the everyday person that, you know, got into Bitcoin at some point, they're going to be the banks of the future, right? You know, they're going to be holding a scarce, extremely valuable asset um, that they can lend out. Um, they're going to be the banks of the future. So you need to hodl and accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible. Hold the strong hands, don't capitulate, because that asset that you're holding on is going to be extremely valuable. Um, and there's a lot of other blockchain you know, assets will be extremely valuable. And you need to think about how you're going to leverage those and make sure you're not a capitulator. Got it. And then one kind of last question on mining. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that, you know, you've made over the years and as well watched other mining companies make over the years that you've learned from and, and kind of have, uh, you know, helped you uh, shape, you know, your, your business strategy moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I think first and foremost, it's timelines, right? You, you know, I've learned over the years, not promise aggressive timelines and, you know, to be conservative, um, understanding, you know, there's global logistics delays, there's delays by manufacturers, there's delays in hosting infrastructure, you know, telling a client that you're going to hit a certain timeline and then delay takes place doesn't help you. You need to, you know, be, have your clients and partners and et cetera, be aware of what could take place, get conservative timelines on deployments or machine orders showing up. And that way you don't get in trouble when the event does take place. And we've been through a million different experiences of learning that. Um, so going forward, that's something we certainly look to improve on. Um, not overextending in bull cycles, um, so, you know, putting me in a bad position for a bear cycle, right? Um, not overextending in infrastructure and capital deployment. Um, I make sure to have a you know strong balance sheet so that I can survive. Um, and we've survived since 2017, right? Many bear and bull markets. I've seen you know 80% of hosting facilities that I once knew in 2017 are gone. Um, I've, you know, or even back dating back to 2015. You know, I've seen 80% of miners that try to set up their own shops. You know, blew out. Um, you saw hundreds of hedge funds over leverage their positions and blow out. I think there's some crazy stats you could read about these funds that just overextended and died. So don't overextend, you know, be a good actor within the space. You know, and being a good actor is important. There's tons of scammers. We've been scammed. Um, you have to be careful. You have to validate who you're transacting with. Um, that's you know one thing about blockchain that can be scary if you're committing millions of dollars. You need to know who you're committing that money to um, when you're sending an asset that cannot be recovered. Um, and you need to make sure you're receiving the goods. And with that as well, securing your assets, right? We wrote a piece you know, many years ago about how to properly secure your digital assets, cold storage, right? Um, storing that passphrase accordingly. The last thing you want is to be hacked and to lose everything that you've built. Um, so just be careful and, 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 and promise the right timelines as a miner, and you'll be in a good position. Do you have any thoughts on the use of derivatives to kind of manage risk for miners? Oh man, I I have a lot of thoughts, and I don't think many are doing it right. So it's you you should be hedging your you know you could hedge your Bitcoin 
um, that comes in accordingly so that you're not getting murdered during downslides and you could actually win during bear markets. But I just don't think there's enough sophisticated shops around and on the mining front that truly understand derivatives and how, how important it can be for them to truly, you know, mitigate their risk. Right. And that's a risk of, you know, a bear market in theory. Um, but with, you know, like I said, moving backwards with the Bitcoin you know, financing that it is available, lending out your Bitcoin, receiving back yield and fiat, you shouldn't have to liquidate your Bitcoin. Derivatives is another way that can hedge you having to liquidate your Bitcoin. Um, but with that, I think there's some extremely sharp shops out there that are doing really well of, of hedging different cryptos. I think this is an area where you, you see the ability to capture a high delta and the ability to frag to capture fragmentation. You can even find you know large variances and discrepancies amongst exchange chain to exchange pricing of Bitcoin and other assets. So how do you capture those variances and and, and fragments and opportunities? And many people are you know, that the most advanced traders are certainly leveraging it. Um, I think miners can leverage it more. And I, you know, there's some there's some large entities and shops out, out there that are certainly doing it. I don't want derivatives to go in the hands of the centralized institutions. So we need to step it up a little bit there. Yeah, it makes, make, makes sense. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts pivoting away from mining just about, you know, general market, uh, you know, structure and kind of your expectations from here to the, to the end of the year? Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of chatter about, you know, some, some excitement into Q4. So just curious, you know, do you share that same sentiment? Yeah, I'm super bullish. I've been bullish since um, this, you know, this last having. I knew this this cycle was going to be one of the best. But you know, from what our analytics and research are showing, you know, I expect a big second half of the year. Um, you're starting to seeing equities, you know, in general recover. Um, Bitcoin mining equities and Bitcoin exposed equities are certainly booming. Um, I love being on the podcast today with uh, Bitcoin, you know, breaking 51k this morning. It's a good time, you know, good time to see green. Everyone loves seeing green. I think you know NFTs are booming. Um, you'll you'll see you know you'll see some heads turn right there. You know you see million pieces selling for millions of dollars, and and a lot of people you know seem to try to be selling their NFTs when you know Ethereum or whatever their their NFT is pegged against you know moonshots, right? Like, is my NFT really worth ten ETH? Um, maybe when it was ETH was worth two thousand, but now it's worth four thousand. So people are like, you know, how do you value that, right? Is it is it stably pegged against the underlying? Or is it you know pegged in fiat? Um, I think you know I think capital is cheap right now. So and everyone is making a lot of money. So you're just seeing people buy things, right? Used cars are worth more than they were like in since I can remember, right? It's a weird stigma where you can buy a new car, you drive off the lot, it's worth more. It's crazy. Um, you know every and that's that's that that's a peg against inflation, right? When you have hyperinflation every asset is going to widely go up in value, um, tracking like the CPI index and you know, cost of living, all that's been trying. Everyone has more money. It's kind of just thrown around like monopoly money at different assets. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see that and you, you know, just try to try to, you know, accumulate as much Bitcoin, for example, right. Um, during times like these, that's the hard money and, you know, fiat's, you know, going to net negative zero. I love the, uh, the U S dollar Bitcoin chart, right. The U.S. fiat against Bitcoin is just—it's going to go like to net zero, but it's just been a downward trend for so long. What are your thoughts, Will? Yeah, so like I don't know. On a similar note, one one of my favorite charts was put out by uh, Raul Paul. He did like this this macro uh, analysis video. I forget what it was called, um, but anyway, so he, he compared all major asset classes to the Fed balance sheet, and I thought this was really interesting because. 
when you look at you know stocks, real estate, I mean, I think equities are up like like ten. Don't quote me on this. Like ten percent from two thousand eight. Like my point is just very minimal when you compare it to the Fed balance sheet. But when you measure Bitcoin against the Fed balance sheet, it it completely sticks out. It's it's the one that you know is is not um, you know barely getting by in comparison. So and I think it just is a testament to the insane asset inflation that we've had. And uh, I think this morning, the, the jobs report was kind of a signal that tapering is probably not going to come till the end of the year. I think that's part of why we saw this price action this morning. Um, and yeah, like I, I think um, we're, we're set up for a good remainder of the year. Like anecdotally, um, hearing from some people about some chatter from perhaps, you know, some, some buyers that bought in in the low, you know, thirties to, to, forties. Uh, and then also, you know, seeing on chain, just, you know, a, a complete reflection of that, right? Like you're hearing anecdotally people are buying, I'm seeing on chain, we have like insane record levels of accumulation. Um, and so I think all those things are, are kind of aligning for, for, uh, some fireworks into the remainder of the year. Um, what are your thoughts on like the whole super cycle theory? Do you do you think we stick to um, the four year cycle? Do you think we detach from it? Like you know, I I, I personally think you know when you look at um, you know minor selling pressure relative to the market, like you know nine hundred Bitcoin is nothing. Like that that's not going impact, to impact the market at all. Um, and so do you do you think we can continue to kind of like evolve around these these minor having cycles? I. You know, that's a great point. I think we will defer from the cycle in, in years to come. Um, you know, we've wrote we wrote a really nice report around the last halving um, where we looked at minor sell pressure. At those points, I do believe miners were the largest sell pressure of the network. And I think that's slowly changing, right? When, when you see the the action that takes place amongst the large accumulators and exchanges, um, you have all this, you know, fluff action, right? Where you just, it's exchange to exchange trades and volatility that can pump this up. But if you can segment that away, I think you see sell pressure in different areas. I don't think miners will always be the largest sell pressure of the network. And I think that's a trend that's heading downwards, as especially as capital becomes more attractive for miners where they don't have to solve the Bitcoin. And I think institutions and, and the largest participants are seeing that as well. Um, but you still have a flourishing OTC DEX and all these you know massive transactions that are taking place um, off chain that are quite interesting. You know, how do you track those? Um, but I do, you know, I do think, you know, scarcity and supply shock are, are super prevalent. And I think, you know, I'm really interested to see what takes place in the next having. I mean, we could see some of the largest movements in history. Um, you know, these, these thousand, two thousand, five thousand movements that happen, you know, could be nothing compared to what we see in the future. Um, so, you know, I'm expecting some wild times. Um, but in general, I, you know, I, I agree with you and I, I see, you know, Miners in, you know, miners in the future will control a lot of the incoming supply, but think about it, you know, over 18 million of the 21 million coins are already mined and, and many of those have been transaction outside of miners hands. So one could argue that miners are not the ones that are holding, you know, the majority of, of the uh, Bitcoin that exists. Yeah. And like two kind of, uh, you know, forms of, of sell pressure that I think people don't think about a lot is like a, just from the exchanges, right. They're taking fees on every transaction, selling that onto the open market. Um, I think it's good to see, you know, Coinbase uh, pledging to to you know take ten percent of their profits and put that back into Bitcoin, which is obviously coming from uh, transfer volume and and the fee that they're taking from that. Um, and then also as as we get an ETF, right? Like if if they're taking you know a one percent fee or whatever, uh, the the larger the ETF gets, uh, the larger the sell pressure that's going to be onto the open market as well. So yeah, I think like the the main uh, 
forms of sell pressure, if you will, are, are going to drift further away from miners. Um, and also just like, as you touched on, you know, they have access to the capital markets now. They don't have to sell their Bitcoin. Um, and that's reflected in, in the on-chain data as well that I look at. Um, you know, you see, yeah, miners, I mean, sold when we ran up to, you know, whatever, 40K initially in, in uh, February. But, you know, overall, when you kind of plot it out over time, um, you see this very distinct change in, in the behavior of, uh, you know, kind of a accumulation from miners that they're now just, you know, buying coins and they're just kind of sitting on their hands. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we kind of veer away from the four-year cycle. Um, some of the stuff I look at is telling that when you look at like, um, once again, the like hodling or accumulation behavior, whatever you want to call it. Um, we like when you look at something I call the liquid supply ratio, um, and you plot it out since Bitcoin's origin, you see we've been in this like descending uh, channel basically. So over time, like more and more supplies become liquid as as Bitcoins become uh, you know more speculative, I guess. Uh, but what you've seen since COVID is actually a, a change in this, where we've, uh, you know, the, the ratio is actually broken above this descending tr- uh, channel that we've been in. And so to me, that's really interesting because it's like you have for the first time a, a change in trend. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a reflection of uh, perhaps people kind of seeking out Bitcoin as like an inflation hedge. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that's a narrative that was pushed out during COVID when we saw the market crash more than ever. And you saw, you know, legendary traders like Paul Tudor Jones and Stanley Drunken Miller and even George Soros opening up a trading desk. I mean, they saw they they their pitches as Bitcoin is a counter against inflation. And then you see in, 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 in the grapevine some massive institutions that are accumulating, right? Massive insurance companies, pension funds, um, companies like MicroStrategy, um, Companies like um, you know some BlackRock and some of the largest managers are buying Bitcoin mining stocks and Bitcoin exposed stocks to get exposure. I think there's, and I'm sure you'll agree with me. I think there's a large number of institutions that have accumulated that haven't announced it yet strategically, and it's just like we can talk about you know what are the events that really will make Bitcoin moonshot, right? One of those is more announcements from you know public institutions you know purchasing, and I think those will come. You mentioned one earlier. Um, an ETF, you know, being approved in the United States, you know, you already have Canadian ETFs and you see, I was just looking at something, the long list of ETFs approval, Gemini being the first to apply for an ETF in 2013, um, woefully denied. Um, but there's, there's a lot that are um, pending approval and will be approved. I think you're going to see more countries adoption, right? Um, El Salvador's legal tender, um, you know, they're the first, you know, the, the, the trailblazers there, you'll see more countries, you know, adopting, um, and then use you know, something, another statistic that I'm sure, you know, you're tracking too well, um, looking at network utilization, right? Um, how many wallet addresses are out there? How many large wallet addresses are out there? Um, what's the overall network activity, the trading volumes, you know, everything's points in the direction of, uh, you know, that's certainly an indicator that um, Bitcoin is being widely adopted and with more adoption becomes more demand. And with scarcity, you know, you, you run into supply shock. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mike Alfred. Uh, he, he spent some yep. time at NIDA. Okay. Um, you know, he, he made a really good point to me the other day. He's like, look, well, all these people that have been buying, you know, they're not going to come. They're all humans, right? They're not going to come out and say that they bought until it looks you know, smart for them to announce that they bought. Um, and that, that kind of resonated with me. And you know, like, I, I just, I so obvious, but I never, I guess, thought of it that way. But uh, you know, I think I think he makes a good point that you know, as we kind of move towards new all time highs, you'll probably start to get people kind of poke their neck out and be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we we accumulated some down in the low thirty k's." Of course we did, right? But they're not going to say that when we're at thirty five k and we're down fifty percent on the year. 
Yeah, I mean, to, to counter that point, I mean, it, some of these entities have a fiduciary responsibility to, to shareholders to announce said things. With that being said, you know, I would I would be shocked um, to know um, and and not, you know, I, I in general, I agree with you, but um, it'll be interesting to see, man. I mean, I think I, I, that's human psychology at its finest. Um, and I always say, you know, mining is not immune to human psychology. Bitcoin, you know, trading and accumulation is not immune to human psychology. Um, you know, it's nice for some people to take, you know, a gain from buying, purchasing Bitcoin at 10,000 and selling at 50,000, you know, can you fault that person for making that sale? You know, for some people it's life changing money, right? Um, you have everyday people participating, but you know, the strongest hands will win in the long run, especially when we're, you know, trading the world's most valuable asset. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess, you know, do you have any, uh, final closing thoughts in terms of anything you've got on your mind about the market or mining or just anything in general? Yeah, I mean, just just looking at it, it's it's just been such a growth. You know, when when I really entered the sector, there was only a, you know, a few major players. There was like ten people I knew that mined. Um, just seeing the the wide adoption and the interest has been fascinating. Um, you know, we have hundreds of people that reach out to us a week, looking to enter mining or participate, or power companies looking to enter and scale, institutions looking to get exposure, and the creative ways they spin up to get exposure. Um, it it is amazing. Um, the global interest in, in blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general, it's it's like the, the gold rush of, of modern time. Um, and everyone is wanting to participate. I don't think it's like the internet, you know, bust that took place or the bubble, right? Everyone wanted in the internet in the 90s and early 2000s. But look what emerged, right? You have, you have Amazons, you have, you know, you have companies like that that emerge and Googles, right? Um, that that are pillars and they're, they are the blue chip stocks of the, of the modern day. And I think we'll see that, but I don't think there's going to be as much of a bubble that pops here. I think this is here to stay. It's proven out its, its existence. I do think there's a lot of projects out there that will not make it. I still like stand by my standpoint of, I don't think 90% of the companies that exist right now in blockchain are going to be around in 30 plus years, right? Like there's all these people that do this and that, but they're going to margin compress and blown out. Um, it's going to be a game of the smartest and the best positioned and those that have access to the best capital and the best teams are going to be the ones that thrive in, in all sectors of this industry. Um, in general, remains super bullish. Um, really pumped about blocker intelligence. We'll probably talk about some of the stuff we're going to do here, right? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm stoked. So uh, after you, we've got next week, uh, this guy, I, I, he's pseudonymous, but he goes by John Wick. He's an options trader. So he'll be coming on talking to you about options and technical analysis and then uh, the next two weeks, we've got Checkmate coming on and then David Puel, who are two of like my big influences from a non-chain perspective. So um, I'm hoping to, you know, just have some some really smart people on and, and just learn a lot. And hopefully the audience learns as well. So um, I'm looking forward to this podcast. And then um, also, you know, of course, we're doing the newsletter, which has been crushing it lately. Um, and then we've, we've also started these uh, weekly kind of like newsletter videos where I'm, I'm basically just doing like a uh, verbal overview of the newsletter and kind of talking through things in a little bit more depth, but, um, yeah, I'm really excited. And, uh, you know, I think, um, we're, we're building a rocket ship here and, you know, I'm, I'm, it's been whatever, two and a half weeks now, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to be here at Blockware. Yeah, man, really happy to have you. And just on the intelligence fronts, definitely uh, go to subscribe to our newsletter and blockerintelligence.com. If you don't, we're revamping the website. We're going to, we're going to post all the podcasts and YouTube channel videos there. 
Um, we're going to aggregate and put a, a research arm there aside from the newsletters. We're going to build some really nice analytics and dashboards and other information um, to essentially become like a resource and intelligence hub for, for Bitcoin and mining and, and, and Bitcoin equities analysis and, and likely into a few other areas. I think we can uh, apply some of the on-chain analysis that you do well into other areas. And, and certainly we're going to do that in mining. Um, but essentially, we want to put out you know data and, and arm the people with intelligence, right? The most valuable asset you can have in the world is intelligence and data and analytics. That's if you have the right data and analytics and intelligence, you can make some you know, massive winning trades. You know, you can forecast well, you can predict the future and in some ways, shape or forms, you know, no one actually can do that. But some of the, you know, the best trading shops in the world have that information. Um, so really pumped about what we're doing here. And um, it was great being on with you. Well, we'll uh, we got a lot of exciting stuff to come, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess one last final question is a fun one. What's what's your uh, I, you can give a range here if you want to cop out a little bit. What, what's your price prediction end of year? Man, uh, it was funny when I was on with uh, Pomp at the beginning of the year and we were looking at statistics like the year after the halving is Bitcoin's best performance here and the average return was like you know, 3,500%. So, you know, you could have argued like Bitcoin 700,000, no way. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm going to go, you know, 100 to 150,000, know, maybe meet in the middle of 125, um, December 31. Uh, last year, I predicted Bitcoin ending price at 35K. So I wasn't too far off. We'll see how I land there. Where are you at? Nice. Yeah. I've, I've got a model that I come kind of basing this off of and, um, it's based off of like an all-time moving average of Bitcoin. And so it's sloping upward. Um, right now it's it's right around like 96K. And so I, I, my prediction is actually 125K. Like, I, you know, that's not just, I'm not just saying that because you said it, but uh, so it's, it's interesting that, that that's your prediction as well. We'll, we'll see where the model's kind of sloping up to towards the end of the year. If, if price starts ripping, then, you know, it might slope up to like 150. But as of right now, it's chilling right around 100K. So yeah, I think, I think at least we can say uh, conservatively probably six-figure Bitcoin by end of year. Nah, yeah, man, I agree. And that was completely coincidental for the people out there. We did not discuss this prior, but uh, us old dogs, you know, 30-year-old guys, you know, have a couple models and tricks up their sleeve too, like the young hotshot Will at 19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, thanks so much for coming on, Mason. This is a blast, man. And, uh, you know, hopefully you come on sometime soon. Yeah, be on, be on again soon. Um, well, really, really fun kicking us off and uh, look forward to hearing some feedback. Thanks, Will. Later. See you, man. Bye.